Welcome to The Common Bridge, where policy and current events are discussed in a fiercely nonpartisan manner. The host, Richard Helpy, is a philanthropist, entrepreneur, and columnist who has over a million listeners around the world. His podcast and YouTube show draws guests and audiences across the political spectrum. And welcome to The Common Bridge. I'm Brian Kruger, the producer of the show, and the only reason I'm starting this out this time is Rich has one of his favorite guests on today, Matt Taibbi, former writer for Rolling Stone magazine, and probably the best, in my opinion, political journalist out there right now. Anyway, we usually start the show and we edit out those guys talking at first. I decided to keep it in this time because it got kind of fun as Matt realized that he had some Michigan flair going on. So we joined them in progress. I just realized I'm wearing Wolverine colors. So this yes, is, this is thank good. you. Yeah. Thank you for doing that. And by the way, I got to tell you that I cracked up. You had one of your columns recently. You mentioned subjecting the country to the Detroit Lions every Thanksgiving. <laughs> um, but I don't know if you're aware of this, but like if you look back in uh, history, the first Thanksgiving actually you know, the, and it's a little more traditional interpretation that the, you know, the Native Americans and the pilgrims all came together and had a feast. And then the, uh, the Lions played the Bears that day and they lost on a last <laughs> second field goal. Uh, so I would have I would have thought it would have been a last second blocked field goal taken. The yeah, other yeah, way. Exa- yeah, right. Exactly. They, <laughs> God love them. They, uh, they're known as the same old Lions because they keep doing that kind of thing. They're amazing. They're amazing. I'm a, I'm a Patriot yeah. fan, so it's uh, Tom Brady's first game was in, against the Lions, believe it or not. Yeah. I was in the big house um, on uh, not the big house as in the Who Scout, that type of thing. The big house in Ann Arbor, Ann Arbor last right. Saturday. Wolverines played a really strong game. I mean, Ohio State's a very good team. Yeah. And the uh, Wolverines played well, and uh, let's hope that they can keep going against Iowa. Yeah. Well, I, I wish you I wish you well. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yes, indeed. All right. Okay, good. So I thought we were going. All right. Okay, that's the topic is not football today. The topic is where are we with the media model? We're in this really strange part of history that we have this administrative state that it has a lot of power and lots of edicts and ability to implement things that affect people's lives, although there's really not any legislative recourse to that at all. And then the media models that we've discussed many times on this show, and especially with our guest today, Matt Taibbi, that the business models of the global media and internet companies, they're really not out there in a search for truth, but they're really about picking their audience and dividing us. So that's what our topic is today on The Common Bridge, is with renowned writer Matt Taibbi about the state of the world, where the power of the fourth estate has been, where it is today, and maybe a little bit about where it should be headed. So Matt, welcome to The Common Bridge. Thanks for having me. Continue to enjoy your books. The Great Divide was very, very good. We listened to it on a long drive. (laughs) Uh, Your columns have been going great. Substack is, wow what you've done with that. And is, is that the new media model? And you've been writing a lot. So what have you been writing about lately? Uh, a, a bunch of stuff. I, I know I'm trying now to, um, you know, cause when I, I started Substack right at the beginning of the pandemic. So a lot of things that I normally would have done in terms of going on the road, like covering the presidential campaign, I didn't have the opportunity to do that. So I'm trying to do a little bit more of that. I, I, I went out to Loudoun County, Virginia on election night in Virginia. And I'm working on kind of a traditionally like reported story about that whole fiasco now. So it's, 
it's interesting. It's, you know, one of the things about this new, new model is it's uh, difficult to replicate the situation that I had at Rolling Stone where they would just tell me, go work on something for eight weeks and come back with a story. Like, I can't really do that now. So I got to kind of report in between. That's what I'm trying to figure out. So down there in Loudoun County, what did you discover? According to the corporate media that I've read, it's a hotbed of racists that are attempting to terrorize the school board members in their own community. Um, were you scared? <laughs> you know, this is one of these culture war stories that by the time the media, the national media got hold of it, it had, it, it, it's, it started out as a, as a simple sort of misunderstanding and disagreement and snowballed uh, gradually into this completely irrational, um, unbridgeable, uh, hostile situation. And it, 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 what actually happened bore no reality whatsoever to what was reported nationally. Um, the, this whole thing really started. Do we have a minute to, to, for me to summarize? Absolutely. It's, so hey, it's your time. Whatever you'd like to chat about, that's what we're here today for. So it, it, what happened was there was this, a little elementary school in Loudoun County, which is the richest county in America by a fair margin. Um, and a little elementary school, they have this thing called project-based learning, which is where it's one of these new educational fads where they're trying to get everybody in the school involved in these cross-curricular uh, you know, approaches to teaching. So they were planning, uh, making a plan for Black History Month in 2019. And the fourth grade teachers sort of said, well, we're going to be teaching the Underground Railroad. And one of the phys ed teachers raised his hand and he said, oh, I, um, I've got this great idea because I went to a training years ago where they did this Underground Railroad, railroad Simulation uh, in gym class. And we could do that as a supplement to your teaching in fourth grade. And they do it. And this has been done all around the country, not very successfully. It's, there's been many controversies all over the country, uh, but they did the program. Um, and there was a, a black student in the class who went home, told his parents or his or her parents that, uh, you know, he had been made to play a slave game and the parents, Oh, boy. oh no. Well, I mean, we, we, we can understand the reaction of, of the parent in that situation. Like, sure, uh, and, and your nine-year-old, uh, you can understand how the nine-year-old interpreted what happened in school that day. Absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. It all, it all makes perfect sense. Uh, but what ended up happening was the, you know, rather than doing what you would think would be, that would do, would happen, which would be, you know, a meeting between the parents and, and the school, an apology, maybe, and, you know, if things went badly, like some sensitivity training, something like that. What this actually turned into was there had been a long simmering disagreement about much bigger issues at the school, specific, specifically about admissions to the gifted program and uh, about disciplinary procedures. So the local NAACP was upset that there were statistical inequities in the admissions process uh, or in admissions to this gifted schools program. And they were about to file a, a long complaint against the schools. And they essentially this incident was used to create a media furor that there was an outbreak of sort of racism in the school system that was then used to try to 
to push uh, changes in the gifted program admission system to decrease the um, the uh, or de-emphasize test scores. So uh, there's well, a whole lot of stuff there to to, to chew on, but ba- but basically this comes down to kind of a a weighty philosophical um, question over like how do you achieve uh, you know, if, if you have a, an ethnic group that's lagging behind in uh, admissions to a gifted program, like how do you achieve that? Do you just numerically make it happen? Do you do instill quotas? Do you do nothing? Um, uh, because the, if you do quotas, then say the South Asian and Asian kids who are doing well, they're, they're going to now not be in as much. Um but rather than present it as a as a serious issue that you know could have been thought out and discussed, it was presented to the media as this outbreak of like insane racism and people not wanting their kids to learn about slavery, which was totally not what happened. Um, and so it, it, it turned into something way more divisive than it needed to be. And I'm sorry, I went on about this, but it, it just it's no. Very it's, frustrating. What's, really, what's really fascinating about this is that I mean, look, the right answer would be. What do we need to do so that all the kids can come up to speed academically to gain their math skills and their reading skills and so forth? Um, and if they, you know, maybe were less advantaged, let's give them some extra attention right now uh, so that they can get to, to that level. And right. then I've seen very successful programs uh, along with that. But the really fascinating part about this and an area that I consider you to be one of the leading uh, thought leaders uh is about the way the media port exactly, exactly. Um, and like it's 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 you were there on the ground as a trained reporter with decades of experience and the way i'm understanding the story is nothing like the we need to have merrick garland threaten terrorism prosecutions because these parents are doing something so horrible yeah it it, it really bears no resemblance to that story at all uh you know, I think I think what happens is, you know, reporters, if especially national reporters, if you can't go there, you're really reliant on what somebody else has written. And mm-hmm. you know, if if the initial report, you know, in the in the Washington Post or some or the New York Times or whatever, says something along the lines of parents were resistant to the teaching about our country's history, you know, that's that's framing it one way. A, a, another way to put it. You know what? What actually happened was the the school was trying to teach the underground railroad story, uh, yeah. did it kind of a ham handed way, um, and this led into a, a you know a hornet's nest of other issues that are really super complicated and and hard and hard hard to sort out. But that's not an easy headline. And and what what's what's infuriating is the willingness of national media to just go grab the third rail and take. Um, take a story that didn't need to be divisive and polarizing, and they made it as polarizing as they could possibly could make it. Well, you talked about that in your book, Hate Incorporated, and you talked about that very phenomena on my show when you were with us before about that the media outlets pick their audience. They want to cheer for their team, and they're really disregarding reporting and the facts that are on the ground. And instead saying, I'm going to seize this and we're going to call this racism and those rubes down in Virginia don't want to teach a full American history. That's what they reported. Right. Yeah. And it's they do that 
um, you know, the, I, I call it the audience optimization model. You know, it's like essentially they're picking who the audience is uh, and then they're crafting a narrative that they know is going to succeed with that audience. Uh, and that allows you to do, uh, you know, as an entertainment model, it works. As a business model, it works. It's terrible as a, as a press model because essentially what you're doing is you're pre-writing your takes on almost everything. Uh, you go into almost any situation and, you know, as a reporter, you can go, you can go to a place like Loudoun County and look for the quotes that you want that are going to support the, the thesis you've already written in your head. If you, if you want to do it that way, or, um, you know, you, the way you should do it is you should go with an open mind and, 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 uh, and just do and tell people what you actually saw, but no, they're, they're, they're just playing to audiences now and it's it's so much more transparent than it used to be even it was so much more transparent than when i wrote hate inc even and that was only a few years ago yeah and and what i'm what i again this is my personal take on this so bear with me as as someone's not a professional in this but you've got this new media model and the new media model is pick your audience feed them things that get them angry, outraged, get them to demean the other side, get them to believe the other side is stupid, that they're taking horse dewormer or they're undermining the republic with their communist ties, you know, depending on what narrative you want. At the same time, I, maybe I'm a, a perpetual optimist, people are starting to go, you know what, we know that when we look at these corporate news groups, we know we're being lied to. Mm-hmm. And it seems that there are people that are saying, you know what, I'm going to pick my own brand of lies versus, you know what, give me something that's not lying. And maybe just to kind of get to the point of this, that's maybe where a Substack's being so successful today. You guys are actually reporting out there. Yeah. I mean, I think I think it's when when the audiences know in advance what you're going to say, uh, they find that boring. Uh, even, even if they're being openly manipulated, even if what they're being told coincides with what their, their belief system might tell them that they would like, eventually they start to tune that outlet out because they know they're, they, they know that it's just to come on. It's basically a commercial. And if you, if you're turning on, uh, you know, Fox or MSNBC and a hundred percent of the time you can guess, uh, what what their read on a situation is going to be that tells you an awful lot about the thinking uh, or the level of thinking or lack thereof at that news outlet. I think Substack, you know, has been successful in large part just because it's unpredictable. Like you don't always know a hundred percent of the time what people are going to say. Um, There's a lot of different voices. Some of them are more predictable than others, but at least there's a little bit of variability, which to audiences suggests, uh, even on a superficial level, it just tells them that there's some thought that's going into what they're reading. Yeah. So, you know, so you're doing reporting and you are unpredictable, which I, I think is what reporting's supposed to be, as well as many of your other writers. But you've drawn some heat for that. People are like, hey, what happened to Matt Taibbi? Like, what, 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 who's he reporting for? Is he a liberal? Is he a conservative? Is he something else? We, we don't know what to do with this guy. Am I getting that right, first of all? Yeah. And isn't that a little weird? No, it's totally predictable. Um, look, it's, it's, a, it's a disciplinary mechanism, these what happened to X stories. 
the king of these obviously is Glenn Greenwald. He's had about 15 of them written about him. You know, the whole idea is to send a message to everybody else in the business that once you, uh, anybody who voluntarily leaves the Eden of sort of mainstream media recognition, uh, not only are you going to no longer be plugged into all the easy avenues of money making, like uh, speaking fees, you know, book deals, you know, there's lots of ancillary income streams that they kind of threaten you with if you, if you deviate from the norm, but also there's going to be like a public shaming thing that goes on, you know, like in Greenwald's case, it was, it was so egregious. Like the New York times did a story called the, uh, the bane of their resistance. Um, I'm sorry. It was a New Yorker Uh, and Greenwald, uh, the, the, the essence of that story was that he had dissented on the Russiagate story because, and they interviewed all these former coworkers and and friends of Glenn's who basically said things like, you know, he has daddy issues. He, he grew up confused because he's gay. Um, One of his former editors said that he has trouble with the direction that the democratic party's going in with, with increased involvement with women and minorities. So they're saying like, because you disagree oh, with us intellectually about this thing, um, there's something pathologically wrong with you. You're, you know, a racist, whatever, like, and you know, people see that and they say, I don't, I don't want to deal with that. Like, and right. they won't step out of line. So I, I did get a story written about me in, in New York, but the, the, the reporter, this guy, Ross Barkan is a very good, he's a very good reporter. And he actually did, I think a very fair job with me, but people still see that. And what, and what they'll see is like, this is what's going to happen to me if I, if I kind of step out of line a little bit. Yeah. And and the the thing that's astonishing with that is that people don't think that they, because they they go to a place like CNN. Okay. And these rocket scientists over there couldn't find a scandal in their own building where (laughs) one of their anchors was tipping off his brother and of course, they're trying to cover the deaths in the nursing homes with the you know sex scandals, and doing a pretty fair job of it because people have kind of forgotten. I'm a healthcare guy, so I follow that a little bit more closely about pandemic mm-hmm. response and data and that type of thing. But it's like, do people not even see this? It's like here's CNN supposedly reporting the news. Here's a story in your building, and then you go, well, wait a minute, they're the same guys whose legal analyst masturbated on a Zoom call. And he's back on the air. Yeah, that was quick. Yeah, it's amazing, and it's it's also and it's also strange. It's kind of a new phenomenon too, because not that long ago, we really celebrated it in the news media when somebody was an independent thinker who kind of went against the grain. Like that kind of personality was really encouraged. Mm-hmm. If you think about somebody like uh, Cy Hirsch, right? The, the the notion of being the courageous one who goes against everybody else's instincts and sticks with a story no matter what that I mean that that's also the legend of Watergate frankly right like the the Washington Post was the only paper that really really stuck with that nobody else believed it right even early in my career you know I've always gone after both sides this is not a new thing for me like criticizing the Democrats like I I was pretty complimentary about Barack Obama when he ran for president but then a year later when I had to cover his response to the financial crisis I, I wrote really long, 
and pretty blistering pieces about him. And they were praised by people in the business because back then it was considered a sign of intellectual independence to do that. Now, you know, there's this monoculture that doesn't tolerate that sort of thing. They don't want you to think independently. They want you to think as a, as a group. And that's different and it's totally unsustainable as a way to do media, like as or to do the news anyway. Well, it, it's unsustainable in a free society. Right. Um, and I know you've had experience living in uh, Soviet Union and then in, in Russia, and you've written about that as well, which I find fascinating as you do those side by sides. But when I think about this group think or right think is, is a time now when we have this bias that's put out by those that are elected or those that are in uh, government bureaucracies, it gets picked up without question, relayed, amplified. And then the what should be the liberating technologies to let us all communicate, they've now gone overboard with censorship. Yeah. And, and I really fear what's going on at Twitter right now. I mean, that was like kind of one place. And now, well, you can't put a photo up unless somebody's approved it. Right. And their, their d- definitions are so broad, you can kind of see what's going to happen here. Yeah, I just wrote about this, too. Um, you know, this the, the story of the Internet going from being a place that uh, had promise as sort of the ultimate democratizing and leveling tool to being an instrument of social control, I think I think is, you know, it's one of the biggest stories of our time. I, I would I would argue that it's probably the biggest story of our time because, I agree. Um, you know, it's it's a political story, uh, you know, at, at the core level. This is about deciding who gets to see what, who gets to talk about what, who has the power to, to, to shape the issues that we debate. And the, the great thing about the internet previously was that it was a, it was a tremendous check on the kind of gatekeeping mechanism of corporate media because there was no way to suppress a story. There was no, there was no way to, to, um, prevent something that was true and interesting from getting out. You think about, uh, you know, that when Dan Rather screwed up that story about George Bush, uh, it was a tiny blogger who who broke that story initially. That would never have happened previously. You would never have seen, you know, somebody who didn't have a voice on one of the big networks, um, you know, exploding a figure of that magnet of, of that uh, level of prominence. Now, I think that the powers that be have figured out that this is untenable uh, for them. They, they, they can't afford to have uh, this kind of a free dialogue, a challenge to the system. And they're, and they're turning these platforms into the same kind of gatekeeping mechanism that I saw in campaign reporters for years, you know, sort of getting together and deciding what is and is not acceptable coverage for people. I, I think it's terrifying. Well, I think it's beyond terrifying. And and I think we are very close to eliminating any kind of a thoughtful process, be it in a courtroom or be it in follow-up reporting. Think about the division over Kenosha, Wisconsin. The headline was, white officer shoots unarmed black man in the back seven times. That was the story. There was no, and again, I'm not going to comment on the officer's conduct. I guess I would point out that he was investigated from the civil rights department and he was investigated uh, by, yeah, by both. state authorities. And, and it was said, no, he acted 
it was what was the the man that was shot? Why were the police there in the first place? He was violating a personal protection order. He had assaulted the woman who made the call. He had stolen her car. He had her kids in the car. He fought the police. He was impervious to the taser. And he's now reaching under the seat for something. Turned out to be a knife. And there's the officer. Everything else has been tried. I mean, I wish they had something else they could use. But he faced with that instant. Do I let this guy drive off in a high-speed chase with three kids in the car? Or do we stop it now? Right. All led up to that. And then, of course, with, you know, with the uh, with the city already in flames, we have, you know, more tragedy on tragedy. And then the, the resulting court case was decided in the media on basically non-facts. What do you call non-facts? I guess they're lies, right? Yeah, I guess. Yeah. And that, and that's my concern, Matt, is that so many people under so many stories have convicted someone on the first accusation before any further facts can be investigated and before any court. That's what I think is dangerous. Look, I, there are lots of different ways to look at the Jacob Blake situation. The, the, you're right. The two two government authorities investigated that, found they had insufficient, uh, found that they, they probably wouldn't be successful in, in a prosecution uh, for a variety of reasons. If you ask people in other countries who have different policing methods what their take on this would be, they would probably say America has too many shooting deaths involving police. But that's not because of what this individual officer did. It's because we just have a different way of doing policing in this country. But traditionally, the role of the media is we try to get things as as right as we can in the first moments, and then we use the time afterwards to get ourselves closer to the truth. What what happens now is we settle in on a narrative immediately, and then it's like the Alamo after that. They're just defending the narrative yes. going, for, going yeah. forward. And so so a situation like the you know the, what happened in Kenosha, yes, that you had a caricature in the in the, in the first blush. But rather than go away from the caricature and tell the people about all the facts on both sides that might make you think a little bit differently about things like, you know, in the, in the Kyle Rittenhouse case, I don't love the, as a parent, I I wouldn't want my 17 year old picking up a rifle and going into, um, you know, a situation like that, but that's different from the issue of, is he going to have a robust defense legally in this state, given that situation, given all this, the, the evidence that came out, you know, these, it's not our job to, to characterize people and then get you worked up about it. It's our job to like kind of dispassionately almost not caring, tell you what happened and then give give you more information as it becomes available. And that's not what we're doing. We're building narratives and then just feeding them day after day after day. Exactly. And one of the things we had a, a fellow on an author and educator a couple of episodes ago, a fellow by the name of Eric Bean, uh, who wrote a book called Bias is All Around You. Mm-hmm. And he went through step by step about how to, it's very, by the way, it's like a hundred page book. And then he's got worksheets, how you can spot bias at who's doing it. Where is it coming from? What are the techniques? And we didn't get too deep in any of the techniques, but again, I'd recommend the book. But one of the things as a pattern recognizer, programmer guy, usually once a public accusation is made, that's kind of the pinnacle. And that's mm-hmm. where the story dies. And then when, you know, more facts come out, it's just, we just move on to the next thing. 
And we've got some interesting things in the news right now. I mean, Jussie Smollett trial started. Uh, Ghislaine Maxwell's in court. We have the Waukesha situation. We have the border and the, mm-hmm. the yeah, the, right. The Waukesha is pretty horrible. Um, and, and, you know, here in Oxford, Michigan, um, which actually the reporting has not been bad about that one. And it'll be interesting to see as that develops. A uh, horrible tragedy. And then about the um, the lockdowns that are going around the world, the protests, and then what we're doing with our border. It's a long list of things in the news. I don't know if you're, any of those have piqued your interest and in, in what you're thinking about following up on. I watch all that stuff just from, from a media aspect. I was, I was kind of a, a, a interested in the lack of interest in the Waukesha story. Like It seems like it happened and then all of a sudden the, the, the national media just decided it wasn't something they were going to focus on and they moved on to something else. And I think there are a lot of questions about that. Like what what was, what was the motive there? Do we, do we know? Why is there a lack of curiosity about that? And that, I think that's a pattern that I, that I've noticed with this new version of the news media. That's different from um, what we used to have. Like for instance, a big red flag for me initially with the Russia story, the Russiagate story was the disinterest among my colleagues in the origin story of all this mm-hmm. like how did how did the investigation start what was the thing that prompted it um we were already sort of well into acts two three and four of this drama and almost nobody was really interested in well where did this begin when did the authority authorities start digging into this thing and that's again, that's totally new. Like uh, the old school reporters uh, wouldn't have cared so much about what the impact of the story was. They they would really be it would just bother them on like o- almost a physiological level, like that. I'm I'm just missing elements of the story. I, right. I I don't know what I don't know what this is, and that that upsets me. Um, but but they don't. We just don't think like that anymore in the press now, which is which is odd. I I, I don't really know how to explain it. Well, that that's something that that troubled me deeply too. That um, if you said, you know, well, this the story doesn't really hold together. You know, that there's a guy in his seventies, been in this public uh, eye pretty much his entire adult life, decided he wanted to be president, and said, you know what, Russians are the way to go. Right. Okay? That that I right, so. And I'm like, okay, that could be true. Let's let's investigate it. And it turned out it, it the whole story was garbage. And I didn't think Trump was a good president. I I mean, he I think he just I just kind of had this envision of him in the Oval Office, just like running from pillar to post and bouncing off things and slugging Diet Cokes down. But <laughs> and that's easy for me to say. Look, I don't think Trump was a great choice for president. I don't think he was a great person to be a president. And also say that the Russian reporting was garbage. And, you know, now the, the the guy that was at the center of this, a guy named Mark Elias, has got 50 lawyers that he's running uh, lawsuits about voting rights. And I've read some of the legislation. I've had a professor from University of Iowa, Derek Muller, on talking about what's in the, the voting laws. Nobody's asking the question, where did... Elias get the money to hire 50 lawyers and file hundreds of lawsuits. Right. I mean, right, it's yeah. like, like who, who's the client? Yeah. 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 Right. I mean, if and he's trying, they, they, uh, you know, proudly publishes just his rate just went up to $1,190 an hour. 
Right. Okay. And, and you can watch the guy hustling. I follow him on uh, uh, social media. He's getting people to register. I mean, it, it, by the way, he's he is like using Trump techniques to make money for Mark Elias. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's, yeah. Yeah. No, he it, it, we're, and we're talking about the guy who was the general counsel of the, uh, the Hillary Clinton campaign in 2016. And um, yeah, no, no. Where's where's the uh, the the curiosity about stuff like that? With that same figure, um, you know, he was he was obviously the person who commissioned the Steele dossier, yeah, uh, and he was he was the person who paid for it. And for an entire year after that thing came out, uh, the question of who financed it somehow eluded the entire national press corps. Um, and we would never have found out, uh, were it not for a, a very strange and, by the way, temporary quirk in the House rules that allowed uh, the the Republicans on the Intelligence Committee to subpoena those records. Um, if if the if they had been in the minority, we would still not know that the Clinton campaign paid for the Steele dossier. And which again is an is an amazing thing. Think think about how many news stories were generated by that, and how how uncurious you have to be to not ask who paid for this thing. Uh, you know, after it's it's especially if you're the one who's writing these stories, like it's just a safety procedure. You know, I mean, as a, as a reporter, you're always terrified that something that you write is going to back up on you and turn into a lawsuit. And the idea that you would publish something and not know who was behind it or who was paying for it, I just can't. It's it's like unsafe sex on 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 the, uh, on the <laughs> ultimate, ultimate level. Yeah. yeah. So so look, I, I think that's that's that would make me nervous as a reporter. Is is this right? But I think worse is when you know what you're writing is wrong. So uh, Newsweek tried to cover for Rachel Maddow. That they had two attorneys, Barbara McQuaid, who's a CNN or C, MSNBC legal analyst, and a, another woman. They wrote this story in Newsweek, and I read it, and I actually wrote a response to it. I put on my website, richardhelpy.com, called the uh, something the, the Russian investigation takes the Smollett approach. Because in their their cover story, they said, "Well, the uh, you know Steele was hired by uh, you know Republicans, and, and then later by Democrats." It's like, no, no, no. The Washington Free Beacon hired Fusion GPS. They were out of the picture in early primaries after it was apparent Trump was going to get the nomination. You know, and, and I know you know this story. And then, mm-hmm. then, the, then uh, uh, the DNC, through Perkins Coy, their legal counsel, hired Fusion GPS, then hired Steele. And I know they knew that was a lie when they wrote it. And I, I kind of took their, their article down piece by piece. And including that they made statements like all these people that were that didn't prove that Trump colluded must be lying. But like Mueller, let them go. Right. Like, yeah. 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 Right. Like he he got George Papadopoulos. But the other ones, he said, no, I'm good here. (laughs) Yeah. No, it's 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 amazing. The the idea that you would publish something knowing that it's wrong is, again, for, for people of my generation and older, uh, and we all remember the days of uh, when you ran your story 
you didn't sleep that night because you were terrified that that somebody was going to look at it uh, the next morning and find the the thing that you screwed up, right? That that might mean your career, you know. Uh, so I think all most news reporters who you know cut their teeth before the this generate this, this last decade or so, um, we remember that thing. But you know, with the, the this really began with the Russia story. Remember when BuzzFeed printed the Steele dossier? They had this disclaimer on the top. That says, um, not only can we not verify this stuff, but we can actually tell you that there are errors in it that we've already found. Um, But we're going to put this out there anyway, because we're going to let the public decide. We're going to let the public decide. Now, that's that's one level of of uh, that's not even dishonesty. That's 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 a position that they're taking. But the next level is is what what most of the reporters did, which is they they knew that they were running dicey material or they knew they were only getting one side of the story from their mostly anonymous sources and they ran it anyway because they were kind of in on it you know it's Mm -hmm. it's there's like a wink wink nudge nudge um or uh, sort of relationship and the thing i can compare this to is like there's a thing that happens on wall street where uh like a short seller will want to knock down a company uh, mm-hmm. and what they'll do is they'll commission an investment bank to do a report about that company and it'll be very, very negative and they'll show the report to a reporter. Then they'll also take the report to the SEC or to the FBI. Uh, now the reporter knows that the, he or she does not have a story unless the FBI or the SEC takes hold of the r- report. The instant they do, he can, they can write a headline, you know, this company is being investigated, but they're not evaluating the, the, the company on the merits. They're just looking at whether or not they're, they have a, a, a technically a way to do the story. And that's, that's, that's a lot of what happened with the Russiagate story. Like a lot of these, a lot of these people knew that the information was totally dubious, but they were just waiting for a technical out that allowed them to put it out there, um, you know what you what you describe with the with the with Newsweek is even a level beyond that because that's just factually flat out wrong. That was uh, that happened this year. Yeah. I mean, this is not ancient history. Like they, this is all out now, and they were writing. They wrote the cover. Right. I mean that that started because the AP got it wrong in, initially, and AP corrected it within a couple of hours. But that that legend continues to survive. Because of stuff like that, you know, and it's 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 incredibly frustrating, uh, you know, that, that, that there again, it's just it's just more the attitude like you, you it used to be a point of pride to not let that happen to you. And now, you know, yeah, well, so you know, it's, as I'm listening to, to you explain this inside of reporting and the fear of getting it wrong, it just seems to me that the fear is, hey, the, the people on my side of the ledger aren't going to like this. I got to shape this and shade this and look the other way. I mean, the the whole thing, the, the media should have had a, a comeuppance and sort of said, you know what? We really failed here. So far, one person from the corporate media, Terry Moran, said we're going to really have some people to answer to. There's been no accountability. A few others, you know, Barry Meyer wrote a book for the, you know, uh, about Fusion GPS that I, I think probably rubbed some people at his paper, the New York Times, the wrong way. Um, but no, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. The, 
you know, that, that idea, oh, I'm so afraid the people in my, in my set aren't going to like me anymore. Think, think about the change in mentality. Reporters used to pride themselves on how, how tough they were, right? Like we were the guys who would go charging out and stand in front of a burning tank and, uh, you know, we would fight through the crowds and, and, uh, you know, we weren't afraid of anything and we were, we were especially not afraid to piss people off. Like that was, that right. was supposed to be part of the job requirement, uh, is that you had to have that kind of personality. Absolutely. Now, yeah. now we're, we're, we're actively recruiting people who have the opposite instinct who, you know, it's like that thing where, you know, when fifty percent of the deer decide to run one way, they all go. Uh, like the, those are the kind of people that we're at, we're looking for in media now, which is just it's just unusual to to see it. It's it's a big change. It is, and I think that it translates over to what we've seen in social media. You know, Facebook, and I followed that story. And again, I've uh, written and talked about the power of tech monopolies and how they can non-person someone. And not one person in the media called out when Facebook is testifying. They're saying, hey, we don't make the rules. It was kind of like, regulate me before I harm again. Right. And, and, and all they really want is a franchise to keep their business going. And they will, they'll censor anybody as long as they get to keep doing that. And that's what I think is happening with Twitter with the change in leadership. Yeah, no, definitely. And as regards to change in leadership, you know, I can tell you Jack Dorsey is, I mean, he's got a lot of critics, but um, he he did uh, call a lot of journalists, including me, uh, for basically just sort of advice on, not even advice, as a sounding board. Like, what would be the speech implications if we did this, this, and this? Oh, nice. Which you know, it was very, very unusual, right? Normally companies do not care what anybody thinks. Um, I think this person actually has a conscience and, and, and agonized over some of these things. And now he's gone and you saw what happened right away. They made exactly. a very, yeah. very yeah. They made a sweeping decision um, that is, that is going to turn basically Twitter into something that's, you know, algorithmic uh, censorship, you know, on steroids and if you talk to people in Silicon Valley, they'll tell you that most people don't have a, a sense of the scale of how big these platforms are. I mean, it's it's just not logistically possible to fairly do any kind of content moderation once once you start talking about um, you know factuality or it's going to be weighed in one direction or another. It has to be done by machine and machines can't do this stuff. If people would diligence. So by way of example, I saw uh, stories and saw video of the, you know, lockdown protests in France and elsewhere in Europe. And then hey, Australia's got these quarantine camps and I'm like, okay, that's, I don't think I believe that. So I go and I'd use my search engine and I try to find that can't find anything on it. So I use my VPN to go access an Australian ISP, and then I do a search, and now I start picking it up, and whoa, they do have quarantine camps, and they are holding Aborigines, and they're holding people that arrive in the country, Australians and non-Australians. They've also restricted travel amongst their states over there, 
And I can't, I can't understand why this isn't a news story. That is it a good public policy? First of all, it's, it's a stupid public health policy, and and but it should be reported. And if you're proud of what you're doing, you should say, yeah, this is what we're doing because we think it makes sense. Yeah, and that phenomenon of not being able to find the material, even though you're specifically searching for it, that's a freaky new thing that nobody seems to be complaining about enough. Like, for instance, the I forget who it was recently. It might, it might have been the Lauren Boebert thing. She 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 goes she gives this speech, or and it's it's offensive and everybody's upset about it. And I wanted to see the original video. Oh no, no, it wasn't that. It was Paul Gosar's video about. AOC, right? Mm-hmm. Remember the and there was a a whole brouhaha about how it was threatening and all that. And I just wanted to see what the video looked like. I didn't I, I didn't have any feelings about it one way or the other. But the first like three or four pages of results when you went to search for it was stories contextualizing it for you. You yes. can't find the root material because they they want you to see what the prevailing opinion is long before you get to actually what the thing is. That's really upsetting because people need to be able to have at least access to the to the root material. I've heard the people that are the talking heads on the uh, and the reporters used to be the print media saying, hey, you know, Matt Taibbi's got more followers on Substack than watch our program at night. And it <laughs> it reminds me of the 1980 American car companies. They're like, hey, the Japanese are stealing our customers. Right. <laughs> yeah. Another, like you quit delivering a product people wanted to buy. Yeah, and they don't make cake cards. Yeah, so talk to us as we wrap up here about where you think we are on a new media model. Can we focus on issues of ordinary people versus those inside the beltway? Like, where are we with that? And, and just for the benefit of our readers, what can the average person do to be a better media consumer? Well, I think we're in an interesting place. You find that there's, whether it's Joe Rogan, who has many times more viewers than either Rachel Maddow or Tucker Carlson, or it's Substack, which is doing extremely well. It's making money, which is unusual. Uh, The problem that I see, though, is that even though there's these big audiences are sustaining these independent media areas, there isn't um, yet an institutional mechanism for like hardcore investigative reporting. Uh, we haven't figured out a way to pay for that yet. We've been able to pay for podcasts. We've been able to pay for op-ed writing, but that thing still isn't there. Um, and as for advice, I would just say, you know, news is an individualized experience. Try to find the the core material. You should be able to find the source material. That's one of the, the great benefits of the internet is that you can find the, the congressional report. You can mm-hmm. find whatever the source document is. In as many cases, you can start with that and also make an effort to read both the media you like and the media you dislike, because the algorithm is designed to keep you in a, in a pen sort of surrounded by your own desires. It doesn't want you to, to go outside of that. Um, and that's you have to fight against that. We've been talking today with reporter, author, columnist. Matt Taibbi, highly recommend his books, his column. Please follow him on Substack. Uh, Matt, you've been super generous with your time today. We really appreciate it. Hope that we get to have this conversation again. Thanks so much, Richard. Take care. Thanks for joining us on The Common Bridge. Remember to rate us, review us, and comment about what you heard today and recommend us to your friends. Visit us at richardhelpy.com and sign up for special promotions. This broadcast was produced by Stunt3 Media, and is available on YouTube and all podcast directories.
All rights are reserved by Richard Helby.